the FT. Hello, and welcome to the Best of the FT podcast, our weekly roundup of news and comment. I'm Henry Mentz. This week, we look at how the oil price makes it hard to recycle yogurt pots, why American bank bosses are paid when they leave their jobs, and whether Ireland, once one of Europe's most Catholic countries, will vote in favour of a referendum on legalising gay marriage. We start with the British election. One week to go, and as the FT's Robert Shrimpley explained, not all the politicians seem to be making sense. There is the most staggering nonsense being talked at the moment about what's going to be happening after election. We had Theresa May at the weekend describing the possibility of an SNP involvement in government as the greatest constitutional crisis since the abdication crisis. You know, at some point, you just have to say, look, nothing you hear from any of these parties about what they might or might not do after polling day should be given even a pinch of salt. Some of the policies are pretty staggering too, said Janan Ganesh, the FT's political commentator. When it comes to housing, the parties are farcical, he said. The Conservatives have help to buy, the right to buy, and much else. Labour, for its part, has today suggested the abolition of stamp duty for most first-time buyers. None of these ideas solve the basic problem of undersupply, which keeps prices unfeasibly inflated. Labour's new policy only helps people with enough money to contemplate entering the market in the first place. What is the solution? Neither party is anywhere near becoming the undisputed party of housing. To do that, they must finally reform Britain's old-fashioned laws on planning and land use, the one structural rigidity that Margaret Thatcher never smashed open. All we have now is artificially constrained supply, artificially inflated demand, and a weird reverence for the green belt that surrounds London. If anything exposes the need for a proper Liberal Party in British politics, it is the farcical housing market, which is not a market at all. The parties are also dodging the big issues when it comes to the National Health Service, as Sarah Neville, the FT's public policy editor, explained. The ruling coalition, the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, have presided over a huge structural shake-up of the National Health Service, which cost a lot, distracted managers, but arguably did almost nothing to address the really important issue, which is how to rebalance the way care is delivered, to take more of it out of hospitals and put it into the community or supporting people in their own homes. Neither the Conservatives nor the Lib Dems are actually trumpeting that in these manifestos. What health policies are the parties talking about? I think the parties have been very busy raising sort of rather peripheral issues. In the case of the Conservatives, they've been bashing NHS managers and Labour's been talking a lot about the role of the private sector in healthcare, even though it remains very, very small by any sort of international comparator in the UK. I think the kind of issues that the next government will have to face, whichever colour it is, will be looking much more closely at the NHS workforce, which is an enormous workforce. It's 1.4 million people. It's actually about 5% of all British workers. And I think what politicians may have to consider is changing terms and conditions of those workers, perhaps even moving towards some sort of performance-related pay. And I think also making much better use of technology so that perhaps in future we as patients will much more often sort of contact our our family doctor via Skype or email to ease the pressures on the surgery waiting rooms. And perhaps even if we're very heavy users of the NHS, we might have technology in our homes so we could seek help without having to go into hospital and ease um, ease the pressure on the hospital budget. 
even the vexed subject of immigration has been barely touched upon in this campaign, said Helen Worrell, our Home Affairs correspondent. The rise of the UK Independence Party meant that we thought this election campaign would be all about immigration and actually the effect has been the complete opposite. And this is because their political opponents know that any discussion of immigration will be a huge benefit to UKIP and not really much benefit to anyone else. Quite apart from this, both the main parties also have an extremely chequered track record on immigration. The Conservatives obviously have spectacularly failed to meet their tens of thousands target over this parliament. And Labour, meanwhile, feels that it's still having to sort of atone for allowing mass immigration from Europe during the last Labour government after the expansion of the EU in 2004. Labour are also promising a cap on non-EU workers, although they haven't set a level. I think Labour's main aim, however, is to legislate to stop employers undercutting wages by exploiting migrant workers. And this actually could have quite a significant effect on preventing abuse of workers at the low-skilled end of migration. Ah, so the parties do have some interesting policies, they're just not talking about them. This is sometimes the moment when some politicians start to panic. So are they? Back to Robert Shrimsley. Within the conservative hierarchy, within the kind of when you would expect to see in discipline and recriminations is when people are convinced they're going to lose and they're playing for another game, which is namely the leadership election. And I think one of the reasons why you're not seeing people breaking cover very much is they're not yet convinced they are going to lose. They're they're worried. They have reasons for concern, but they don't think the game's up yet. And at the moment, they don't want to be the ones that break cover and get blamed. Now to the US. The AFL-CIO, the country's largest trade union federation, controls about $94 billion in assets. So when it kicks up a fuss, companies often have to take note. Its current complaint focuses on golden parachutes, the payments made to bank executives at Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan and elsewhere when they take big jobs in the public sector. Over to Heather Slavkin-Corso of the Union Federation. From a shareholder perspective, we're wondering, you know, how is this in the best interest of shareholders to basically pay these senior executives who presumably provide valuable human capital to leave and work somewhere else? Of course, there's a reason why banks might want to pay people who have important jobs in government. We've just come out of a major financial crisis, and it was clear as we were seeing the events unfold in 2007 and 2008 that the failure of financial regulators to be at the top of their game was, had something to do with it. The AFL-CIO wants more disclosure about how common the practice of payments is. In the meantime, let's hope the executives don't get their golden parachutes stuck in the revolving doors. Now, Ireland is holding a referendum on gay marriage on May 22nd, and polls show that three quarters of people intend to vote in favour. How has that happened? Vincent Boland, the FT's Ireland correspondent, explored what the vote said about modern-day Ireland. Two developments in recent years have ignited this transition. One is the self-destruction of the Catholic Church, after two decades of revelations of the physical and sexual abuse of children by priests and sometimes nuns. At the same time, Irish society is more secular, diverse and materially wealthy than it has ever been, shaped by emigration and immigration, a rapid opening up to the modern world since the 1970s, EU membership and the economic resurgence of the 1990s and early 2000s. Rising material wealth seems to have expanded minds as well as wallets. One academic said the vote was part of Ireland's transition to being a normal European social democracy. But in some ways, the country's relationship with the church is more complex than that of France and Spain. Vincent Boland explained. Ireland was hardly the only European country in the 1960s and 70s that was repressive and socially conservative. Spain and Portugal were ruled by military dictatorships in cahoots with the Catholic Church. 
The celebrated student riots in Paris in 1968 were ignited, at least in part, by the refusal of university authorities to agree to mixed sleeping quarters. Yet Spain and France had a strong anti-clerical tradition, unlike Ireland. Mr. Kelly says that the Irish Catholic Church was built on persecution by British colonial rule and saw itself as immune to change. It was a symbiosis of nationalism and religion. Father Sean McDonough, founder of the Association of Catholic Priests, an organisation that defends the institution of the priesthood and the many Irish priests who did not commit crimes against children, says it may be too early to write off the Catholic Church in Ireland. It can and should regain the position of respected authority, he argues, but only when it adapts to the modern world. The travails of the Church have made the Irish people not necessarily less Catholic, he says, but Catholic in a different way. The Association has decided, quote, not to adopt a position in favour of or against the referendum, he says. The issue is an argument about modernity, and who could be against that? Finally, spare a thought for the companies recycling your plastics. Oil prices are still low, at below $70 a barrel, and that's causing big problems for recyclers, as Polita Clark, the FT's environment correspondent, explained. Oil is uh, really the main feedstock for plastic, for virgin or brand new plastic. And so when oil prices fall, that means that the makers of new plastic are able to lower their prices. The same is not true for plastic recyclers. Their main feedstock, the discarded bottles and yogurt containers and tubs that we all throw out each day. And unfortunately for the recyclers, as the price of oil has fallen, it's allowed the makers of their rival brand new plastic to lower their prices, but the prices that they have to pay for their feedstock, i.e. the discarded bottles and containers, not only haven't fallen, in some cases they've actually risen. That's all for this week. We're taking a break next week because of the British general election, but we'll be back on Friday, May 15th. You can find all our podcasts at ft.com slash audio. Thanks for listening. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.